This message was recorded during a conference for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Turn in your Bible, if you would, to Revelation chapter 21. Shouldn't be hard to find. This is the next to last chapter of the Bible. Guys, this has been great. This has been an amazing couple of days together. And we have had a wonderful time. Think about everything that we've experienced here teaching from God's word. We have, we have sung our hearts out. We have worshiped God. We have laughed and made great memories together. We've played games. We've competed. We've made new friendships. We've had a wonderful time, conversations between parents and teens, all kinds of great stuff happening. And think about over the next day or two, as you kind of transition back to normal life, what you're going to be talking about. Think about what you're going to tell family members back at home this afternoon or friends at church tomorrow. Think about how you will describe everything that has happened here. There's a lot of ways we might describe it. And I can imagine, I can imagine myself thinking about this, getting carried away, just thinking about how great this was to be together here in this idyllic setting on top of the bluff and great weather and everything else. And I can imagine myself saying, man, it's like a little slice of heaven. I would say that. I don't know if that's the kind of thing you would say, but I could say that. When we say that, well, we... It almost is. It's not completely heaven. It's, I mean, the food uh, and the mattresses, you know. Um, but everything else, really good. Um, we mean by that that we felt near to God and we felt near to God's people. And we had an experience here that we didn't want to end. We've come together and we've had the fun and the laughter. We've heard God's word. We worship together. It makes normal life seem boring. Wants to go back home to you know, jobs, and school, and cutting the grass, and doing laundry, and everything else that we have to do. But oh man, this this is we don't want this to end. And we have these experiences, right? It's not like this is the only time you think that. There are other experiences that you have that you might think, oh, that's a little slice of heaven. Maybe vacation. You go to the beach or the lake or the mountains, and you're there with your extended family, maybe cousins or grandparents that you don't see that often, and you're laughing and you're having a great time together, and there the food is really good, and the mattresses are really soft. And you're like, ah, little slice of heaven. I don't want it to end. Well, we have that experience because there's something in us that knows, well, this is kind of like the way it should be. There's something in us that thinks this experience that we have of, of people and laughter and joy and memories, maybe this is a little bit what, he, like, what, what, what heaven is like. When we try to stop and imagine heaven, if you've ever done this, really try to picture, just right now in your mind, think, okay, what is heaven like? Draw a little mental picture of it, a map. Think about, think about what it's like. Get as specific as you can, right? Where is it? What does it look like? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? Who is there? Who isn't there? Many of us, I think, have a pretty fuzzy picture of this. Uh, you know, cartoons have led us to think, well, there's blue sky and clouds, basically like sitting on clouds. And somehow they kind of hold you up. They're not, I don't know, you don't get wet. You're just like walk, walking around on clouds. Why not? Some people think that heaven will be basically disembodied, will be set free from these bodies and will just be sort of spirits like floating around. And I don't know, it's hard to give like fist bumps to a spirit, um, you know, walking up to saints who have gone before us. John Calvin, my man, how do you high five somebody that doesn't have a body? You can't do that. Other people maybe think heaven, I don't know, they picture angels that are there and they think like Hallmark cards, like chubby little baby angels with rosy cheeks and cute little wings and uh, if that's how you think angels look, just remember that every time in the Bible somebody sees an angel, they just fall on their faces and they're terrified, right? No, there's going to be some pretty amazing angelic beings in heaven. I think if, if most of us are honest, we probably haven't really thought that much about heaven. Maybe a little bit, but just in a vague and sort of generic way. We haven't really thought specifically about what it will be like what, we will, what will we do there? How will we pass our days? I mean, yeah, we're going to worship, right? I mean, I'm sure there's going to be singing in heaven, but, well, I don't know. What about after that? Well, more singing. Okay, good. What will happen after that? Well, maybe more singing. Well, right? No, there's something after that. We're going to do other things too. And the Bible actually gives us a much clearer picture 
of what heaven is like. And some of it maybe is different than we've been led to believe. But I tell you this, none of it will be boring. Revelation ends with a picture of heaven. It ends with a vision of what heaven will be like. And that's where we're going to end today. Revelation chapter 21. I've been reading bigger chunks of Revelation. I've been I read some long sections. And, and this morning, I'm going to read all of chapter 21. It's going to take a couple minutes. And part of the reason I've been doing this is because this is how Revelation is supposed to work. As important as it is to study individual verses or even individual words, part of what we need to do with this book is to read big chunks of it at a time and think about how does that make me feel? What is the impression I'm left with? How does that make me think about the world, about heaven, about a dragon, about beasts, about, about the world that we live in? So that's why I'm doing that. So I'm going to read Revelation 21, 1 through 27, the whole thing. Why don't we pray first and ask for God's help, and then we're going to have at it. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this book. We're so grateful for it. We're grateful for so many wonderful things that we've seen here, so many surprises, so many delights, so many things to thrill our souls. And we thank you that most of all, in this book, we see Jesus. We see the lion who is the lamb, standing as those slain, who has overcome the dragon and has bought us by his blood to make us your people. And now we pray that we, you would help us to see clearly and understand clearly what lies in store for us out ahead in the future. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and help us to set our heart on all that you show to us. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the heavenly city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall. 144 cubits by human measurement, 
which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the ninth, excuse me, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord to us. Revelation shows us the way things really are, and it shows us the way things are really going to be. And it shows us the way things are and the way things are going to be so that we might live well in this world, things as they really are. The promise of the future, the promise of this heavenly city, this vision of heaven is meant to strengthen our faith. By showing us the way things really are, Revelation helps us to have patient endurance in the midst of this tribulation. It helps us to carry on in the midst of the war that the dragon is waging. And it gives us hope that there is a place of safety and security, a place where God is ruling and reigning over all things, and best of all, where we will see him and know him. We will see him face to face, and we will know him personally because heaven is God's place. If you're taking notes, this is our first point from Revelation chapter 21. Heaven is God's place. Let's look at where this begins. Heaven is God's place, and this is a new heaven and a new earth. The most striking thing about heaven in the book of Revelation is that it is new. The old earth, the one we live in, And the old heaven, the moon, that full moon, that beautiful, beautiful full moon that we saw last night, all the stars that are up there, the Milky Way, that old heaven, the sea, the ocean that we love, boating, all of that, all of that is gone. All the old version is gone. The old earth, the old heaven is gone. Look at verse 5. Behold, I am making all things new. This is pretty amazing because I don't know about you. I think that there's a lot of beauty in this world. We see it right here. This is pretty breathtaking. If you haven't been down to the bluff, and I talked to somebody this morning who hadn't been over there to take a look, go check it out. The view is phenomenal. It's worth a few minutes. But there is all kinds of beauty right here. Just that we've seen today, sunrises. The sun came up this morning and it was this fire, this, this ball of fire, and it, it passed behind this cloud and then came up again. It was beautiful. I saw a hummingbird this morning, like this iridescent green and purple, and its wings just moving impossibly fast. It comes up, it just hovers there, gone. It's beautiful. I've been to the Grand Canyon. I've been to the top of Pikes Peak. I've flown over the Rocky Mountains. I've stood on the shore of the ocean and watched the sun set. There is so much beauty in this world. But for as beautiful as this world is, it is also wrecked by sin. We live in a broken and corrupt world. This world, Romans 8.22 says, groans under the burden of sin. There is decay and death. There are allergies and sprained ankles and COVID-19 and cancer. 
There is death and decay all around us. This world, as wonderful as it is, as beautiful as it is, this is fallen creation. This world has been tainted and stained by sin. And heaven cannot be heaven until every trace of sin has been removed. And that includes undoing and remaking this world that has been corrupted by sin. So when God says, I am making all things new, what he is doing is he is recreating his creation. He is recreating, fixing everything about this world that is broken. There's a Bible dictionary that I checked up on this, and it said, in the sense that what is old has become obsolete and should be replaced by what is new. In such a case, the new is, as a rule, superior in kind to the old. What God is making is superior in kind. That is hard for me to imagine. I have, I have driven through the mountains and thought, how can you improve on this? I've stood in, in a field in the middle of Kansas, just wheat as far as the eye can see, and an impossibly large blue sky, and this fresh breeze on a spring morning, and just thought, how, like, how can you get better than this? Well, God can and God will. He is going to make it something new. It's going to be like what was old. When, when it says here that this is a new creation, I don't think that we're supposed to take away from that, that it will be unrecognizable. It will just be something completely different. New in the sense of improved and fixed and repaired, not new in the sense of now chucking that and starting over, right? This isn't, this isn't like your mom gets started making a cake and then realizes she doesn't have an ingredient and chucks that and makes cookies instead. No, this is something superior, better, improved to what was there before, refreshed and remade. There's an author named Randy Alcorn, and he's written a book called Heaven, and it is fantastic. And if you haven't read it, you should get it. And young people, if it looks too daunting to you, because it's like 300 pages, uh, he, he has a simplified version called Heaven for Kids that is fantastic, too. And that'd be a great way to get started. He says this about this new and old thing. He says, as human beings, we long for home, even as we step out to explore undiscovered new frontiers. We long for the familiarity of the old, even as we crave the innovation of the new. Think of all the things that we love that are new. And we do love new things, don't we? Moving into a new house, the smell of a new car, the feel of a new book. A new movie, a new song, the pleasure of a new friend, the enjoyment of a new pet, new presents on Christmas, staying in a nice new hotel room, arriving at a new school or a new workplace, welcoming a new child or grandchild, eating new foods that suit our tastes. We love newness. Yet, in each case, what is new is attached to something familiar. We don't really like things that are utterly foreign to us. Instead, we appreciate fresh and innovative variations on things that we already know and love. So when we hear that in heaven we will have new bodies and live on a new earth, that's how we should understand the world. The, I'm sorry, how we should understand the word new, a restored and perfected version of our familiar bodies and our familiar earth and our familiar relationships. That's helpful, isn't it? Isn't it great to think, yes, the things that we love so much about earth the things that we love about human relationships, the things that we love about the pleasures that are here, a good meal, a nice soft mattress that you'll probably enjoy tonight, all of those things will be made new and improved and set free from sin. This earth, it will be recognizable. When we get there, it will feel like home. In fact, it will feel more like home than anything we've experienced here. I don't know if we'll be able to, to visit familiar landmarks. I don't know if we'll be able to go to Pikes Peak or go visit Lake Michigan or go walk through the streets of Charleston. I don't know if it'll be like that, but it will be recognizably home. Now, the fact is that this chapter and, and other chapters in the Bible about heaven, they raise lots of questions about what heaven will be like. And if you have lots of questions about what heaven will be like, Randy Alcorn, that book, Heaven, is your, that, that, he has written like the definitive book on heaven. We don't need another book on heaven. He has gone through and researched and thought about, I think, every possible question. Will there be pets in heaven? 
Will there be pizza in heaven? Will there be coffee in heaven? I think the answer to all three of those questions, yes. I think. Randy Alcorn thinks so too, so there you go. Here's what we can say for sure. Heaven will be a real and a physical place. It will be solid, tangible, maybe more solid and more tangible, even than the world that's around us right now. Heaven is a place of activity, right? It's a place of worship, but also of learning, of doing, of exploration. It will be a place of relationship, of getting together. It'll be a place of feasting and a place of parties. The best things of this earth will continue on in heaven. People in heaven, they will be recognizable. You will, you will be able to spot your friends and your family. There will be joyful reunions. Some of you, for family members who have gone home to heaven ahead of you, they're waiting. They're there. It's going to be happy reunions. And we'll be able to meet great saints from the past. You have theological heroes? Have you read church history? Have you read books by Puritans or church fathers? Maybe even you want to meet the Apostle Paul? Sure. You want to grab a latte with C.S. Lewis? Absolutely. Maybe play spike ball with Martin Luther? Why not? I bet he's good. I don't know. He, he's a kind of portly gentleman. He might be a little slow. You can take him. He might be waiting to correct me about this. I don't know. We'll see. Will there be lattes and spike ball in heaven? Yeah, probably. Why not? Right? There will, be, there will certainly be eating and drinking. The pleasures that we experience on this earth, it's not like we're just going to abandon them and leave them all behind. If things on earth, if, if God has given us these gifts on earth for our pleasure and for our joy, why would those pleasures not be magnified and enhanced in heaven? Why would there not be biking and boating and reading and playing music? Those of you that are good at these things here on earth, I bet you'll be even better at them in heaven. I don't know. I kind of hope that I can sing in heaven. <laughs> I can learn. We got all eternity, right? I can learn. So I'm going to apply myself to learning things like that. Presumably, the activities on earth that we enjoy so much, they will be available to us, but better because without sin and without all that goes along with sin, fatigue. We play these games until we're worn out. We sing until our voices are cracking. There won't be any of that. You're not going to get tired in heaven. These bodies won't be limited and, and corrupted and, and, and able to be bruised and broken and dislocated and disjointed and and worn out, none of that. All the best of earth without the worst of sin. Oh, it's gonna be so great. And look at verse 10. Heaven, at least a major part of it, is a city. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And this city is beautiful beyond comprehension having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Once again, John is like, I don't even know how to tell you about this. It's like, it's like the most precious thing you can imagine, this gemstone that just sparkles and is full of color and radiance. It's like that, but better. This city coming down out of heaven, he sees it, and it just, he is in awe of what he sees. And did you notice what happens here? Heaven is not up. Heaven, a city, comes down. It comes down. This earth has been remade, and God says, I'm going to build a city here. I have built a city. It's coming down out of heaven. Heaven will be here. Ultimately, heaven isn't escaping from this world. It's living in this world the way God intended it to be. Revelation shows us the way things really are, and it shows us the way things are really going to be. And look at what this city is like, verses 11 through 14. This is phenomenal. There's three gates on each of the four sides. They're huge. These gates are made from one solid pearl, but these gates are big enough for the nations to pass through. Like what kind of clam did this pearl come out of? Pearls come from clams or oysters. I don't know, whatever. But this is a huge, huge pearl that has been fashioned into, a, like, is it a real pearl or is it a symbolic pearl? It doesn't matter. It's beautiful. It's gigantic. And you've never seen anything like it. 
And the foundations of this wall are adorned with every kind of jewel. Jewels you've probably never seen, maybe wouldn't even recognize if we dropped them into your hand right now. The foundations, verse uh, 19, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. I told you that my family was in Washington, D.C. last week. A lot of construction going on. They're building all kinds of stuff. And we, we drove past some construction sites with these huge bulldozers. They're digging. They're digging down. I tell you what, the foundations of that city, not so attractive. It's a lot of concrete. It's some rebar. It's some rusty old pipes, right? No jewels. I didn't see any jewels. Jewels, gems, the things that we consider most valuable on earth, yeah, use them for the foundations. Gold. How expensive is gold? It's like hundreds of bucks for an ounce. And yeah, that'll work. Pavement. We need, no, don't use asphalt. Forget about concrete. We're not going to have gravel here. We got gold. Just use gold. That'll work fine. Stuff we make, we make rings. The things that we use to commemorate the most memorable and valuable moments of our lives, weddings and graduations. In heaven, it's just pavement. <laughs> That's how valuable, how glorious this city is. Oh my goodness, I can't wait for it. So we should try to imagine this, what heaven is going to be like. Think about this. Because uh, Charles Spurgeon says, Christian, Christian, meditate much on heaven. Picture it. Think about it. It will help thee to press on and to forget the toil of the way. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of toil on the way here, a lot of tears on the way. It will help thee to press on and to forget the toil of the way. The veil of tears is but the pathway to the better country. I love that phrase, the pathway to the better country. This world of woe is but the stepping stone to a world of, bless, of bliss. And after death, what cometh? What wonder world will open upon our astonished sight? Think about that. So if this is what heaven is like, well, who will be there? This isn't a trick question. If, if heaven is God's place, then heaven is for God's people. If you're taking notes, this is the second point. Heaven is for God's people. The new Jerusalem is an actual city, and it is symbolic. This is how symbols work a lot of times in the book of Revelation. They are, think about this, symbols are, they're a real thing, but they're also a symbolic thing. And this happens here too in real life, right? So I, I wear a wedding ring, husbands and wives wear re wedding rings. This is a symbolic thing, but it's also a real thing, right? It's physical, it's tangible, you can touch it, you can see it, but it also symbolizes so much more. It symbolizes my love and commitment to my wife. It symbolizes 21 years of marriage that we've had together. It symbolizes everything that our relationship means. Isn't it amazing that such a little thing can pack so much meaning and significance into it. Well, symbols in heaven work the same way. And this, this city, is, it is a real and physical city. We should expect to have a city. But it symbolizes God's place with his people. It is the place where God's people dwell and where he dwells with them. But it is not for everyone. Look at verse 8. Chapter 21, verse 8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. John lists eight sins here, eight kinds of sins that will keep people out of heaven. These gates are not open to everyone. Just as heaven is a real place, so is hell. And I wouldn't be serving you if I didn't talk about this. It doesn't bring me any joy there's no, I love talking about heaven. I don't love talking about hell. But it is a real place too. It's described as a lake of fire, a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth, a place of intense loneliness, separation from God. To die physically is one thing. At least when you're dying physically, there's a moment when it's done. If you've ever been there with somebody who dies, you think this is, the suffering, the dying, the dying is terrible, but there's a moment where somebody has died and it's over. But the second death does not end. This is why repentance and obedience, why we talk so much about coming to Christ, coming with faith and repentance, 
because hell is real, but because heaven is real. And if you are a Christian, if you become a Christian, heaven is the place for you. Heaven is the place waiting for you. It's the place God has prepared for you, that he's made for you, that he has crafted for your pleasure and your enjoyment and your satisfaction and to worship him and to be with him forever and ever. Heaven is for God's people. This city, here's how I know. There's a bunch of ways. There's so many different ways that he describes how heaven is God's place for God's people. 21 verse 9 says, he says, look, come up here. I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Who is the bride? Throughout the Bible, the bride is the church. He says, now remember, the hearing and seeing thing, remember that from the other day? I'm going to show you the bride. What does he show him? He shows him a city. Oh, cool. The seeing interprets the hearing. He heard about the bride. He sees the city. The city is the place where God's people dwell. The city is the home of the church in heaven. It's where the church goes. He is seeing a city full of those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And he says to the thirsty, uh, look at verse 21, verse 6. He invites those who are thirsty, I will give them from the spring of the water of life. Those who are thirsty are those who humble themselves and come to Jesus Christ. Verse 7, to the one who conquers, those who rely on him and walk by the Spirit. And verse 27, he says, those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. These are the people that God welcomes into heaven. These are the people who the lion who is the lamb died for. The one who stands as those slain, his blood was shed on the cross for them. And now their names are written. If you are a Christian, this book at the end of 21, chapter 21, this book, their names are written in the lamb's book of life. Friends, if you are a Christian, your name is in a book right now. And there is no eraser here. There is no command Z to undo. Your name is written in this book. And you have a ticket to walk through the gates of heaven. What a wonderful thought. Friends, you get God himself. Heaven is God's place. Heaven is God's place for God's people. And what makes heaven heaven is that God himself is there. And if you're taking notes, that's the third point. Heaven is where God dwells with his people. This is what makes heaven heaven. Heaven would not be heaven. If it were just, I don't know, like some kind of great park with all this fun and entertainment and there was all this cool stuff to do and great food and yeah, you had energy and you never got tired and you got to run and play and do stuff, but God were not there, it would be no heaven at all. That would not be heaven. What makes it heaven is that God will be there. Look at verse three. I heard a voice, a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself, God himself, God himself will be with them as their God. Is God with you now? Yes, sure, of course he is. God is everywhere. God is with you by his spirit. But God himself, the Father, will be with them as their God in a way that he's not with us now. More real, more tangible, more close than ever before, and we will see him face to face. Verse 7 says that we will know him as a father. Look at verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Now, ladies, don't get irritated that it says son and not sons and daughters here. There's a reason for that. And the reason is because in the ancient world, the firstborn son was the heir of everything. When the father died, the firstborn son got everything. All the riches, all the wealth, all the land, all the inheritance went to him. And what this is meant to symbolize is that every Christian, every man and woman, every boy and girl, every Christian is is treated like an heir. Sons and daughters, we get all the riches of the Father have come to us through Jesus Christ. The idea here is that all that belongs to God, 
belongs to his children. And if you come to him, if you come into the city by the blood of the lamb, all that is there will be yours. Here's the other way that I know that this is the place where God dwells with man. This whole thing about the measurement, did that seem weird to you? Like what's with the, why does this angel get his ruler out and start measuring this city? Look at verse 15. The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. Doesn't this feel like, have you ever been watching some kind of action movie? Remember when people used to watch movies on TV and the movie would pause and there'd be a commercial and you'd be like, ah, man, they, they, it was the getaway and the car just jumped and they're in the air and they're gonna go into the river and what's gonna happen? Like, th does this feel a little disruptive? Like, what's with the measuring? 12,000 stadia. Okay. We don't have stadia today. I did the math on this. What this means is that this city is gigantic. This city, in fact, I tried to sketch it out. Roughly the size. No, not New York. New York's a big city. You guys been to New York, Chicago, LA? They're big cities, right? You got an idea of what a big city is like. Well, uh, Tokyo is even bigger. Beijing is even bigger. There's bigger cities out there. No, no, no. You don't even have the sense of scale. You got to think bigger. This city, 12,000 stadia, is roughly from the East Coast, say from Virginia to about the Mississippi River and the Canadian border to Florida. And as high, <laughs> did you see what it says? Its length and its width and its height are equal. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. The tallest building in the world is in Dubai. It's called the Burj Khalifa. I'm sure you've seen pictures of it. Um, it's I, can't, I didn't look up the number. It's really, really tall, but it's not 12,000 stadia. It is not, if you laid it on its side, it would not stretch from Virginia to the Mississippi River, not even close. What does it mean that this city is as tall as it is wide and it is long? I don't know. Maybe there are spires, maybe it's skyscrapers, maybe there are mountains that are, there's hill, uh, houses built on top of them. I have no idea. It sounds awesome, but think about this. Here's why this matters. Here, here's what makes this really cool. It is as long, 12,000 stadia this way, 12,000 stadia this way, 12,000 stadia this way. You know what you call that shape? You guys, all, it's summertime. I know we're not thinking geometry right now, but if you have a shape that is the same length and height and, and width, what do you call it? It's a, it's a cube. It's a cube. Okay, now think for a minute. Where is there another cube in the Bible? There's only one. There's only one other cube in the Bible. Do you remember when they built this tent that they called the tabernacle? And they made it this long and this wide. It was long and rectangular, but they took the back third of it and they put up another curtain and they created a little room that was as wide and as long and as tall. It was a perfect cube. And you know what happened in there? They called it the Holy of Holies because that was the place that God descended to meet with his people. Oh man, it gives me goosebumps thinking about this. We are supposed to think about shapes. God cares about details like this so that when we read about a holy city that is as long and as wide and as tall, the perfect cube, we should think, I have seen another cube in the Bible. That's where God lives. God came down there in smoke and if you went in there without blood, if the high priest went in there without blood, he would die. The presence of God was dangerous. In fact, there's a legend that that, that happened, that people went in without blood and, and they died. And so there's a, there's a legend, a Jewish legend, that they would start to tie a rope around the guy's foot and put little bells on him so that if, they, if he stopped making noise, they would pull him out. I don't know if that's true or not, but that gives you an idea of well, the, the, God moving in and living there was not safe. And do you know what happened? There was a point when Israel sinned. They abandoned God by their idolatry, and God moved out. And that perfect cube became just a breezy tent. There's nothing to it anymore. But this cube, this cube here, this heavenly city, God has prepared for his people. And once we are moved in. There is no moving out. Once God comes here, he is never leaving. This is an eternal city where God will dwell with his people forever and ever. Amen. And look at verse 22, 23, 24. By the light, by its light, the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. There is a lot of glory out there among the nations, power and wealth 
and technology and all of that is thrown in saying, this is for God. This we offer as a sacrifice to him and its gates will never be shut day and night. Unending access, the presence of God always. We will be with him. And then 22, let's just read a little bit farther ahead. 22, verse 4. What will we find there? They will see his face. They will see his face. Now, you guys know your Bibles. And maybe you think about Exodus 33. Do you remember this, this moment when Moses is talking to God? He wants to see his presence. And God says, no, no. 33 verse 20, he says, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. But here it says, no, they will see his face. How is that possible? Because the sin that would have gotten them killed, God's holiness is so pure and so hot and so radiant that to come and see his face with sin, instant death. God will not stand the presence of sin. But what happens in heaven? Sin has been taken away. Sin has been paid for. We already know the penalty of sin has been removed and the power of sin has been removed. We talked the other day, right now, the presence of sin is still with us, but not anymore. There will be a day when the presence of sin has been fully removed. You will no longer be tempted to sin. You will no longer want to do things that you know are wrong. Your conscience will no longer nibble at you saying, stop it, don't do that. You shouldn't have done that because sin will be erased and eradicated. It's been paid for by the blood of the Lamb. What a day that will be. And so we will be able to see God's face safely. And we will look square on the most beautiful thing we have ever seen and will ever see for all eternity. That day is coming. And because God is there, and because sin isn't, everything that is wrong with this world will be made right. Friends, heaven is going to be wonderful, if nothing else, just because we're going to be set free from everything about this world that is broken. Look at verse 4. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He will wipe away. He. He. Who's going to do this? It's not just like here, pass the Kleenex and wipe your own tears. No, he. Picture a father taking a crying child palm on her cheek and just wiping that tear away. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Friends, all that is broken in this world will be undone. All that is ruined in this world will be repaired. All that is fragmented and fractured in this world will be fixed. We have so much to look forward to. And we need this in our hearts. We need to come back to this chapter again and meditate and look forward to heaven. Like Spurgeon said, it will help us on the way to heaven we need these truths in our hearts and we need them fresh in our minds every day. I'm gonna give you a real simple way to review these truths often. One of my favorite books on the planet is J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. Last night, a couple of the girls were asking me, what are good books to read? We're getting ready to go to college. What should we do? What would be, I said, have you read Knowing God? And they had, which is good. And he has wisdom. He has advice for us about how to keep these truths in our hearts. He has, a, he has six short sentences that he recommends repeating. I'm gonna give you those in a second. First, here's how he explains it. He says, going through this regularly, this is the Christian secret of a Christian life and of a God-honoring life. Say this over and over to yourself, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, anytime your mind is free, and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is all utterly and completely true. What he's about to give us now are six brief statements 
that he's saying, just repeat this to yourself every day. Review these truths every day. This is not a mantra. This is not like just something that's automatic or magic. Like if you just say this, it'll all be good. But this is truth that we need to review and rehearse every day of our lives. Here's what to say. Number one, I am a child of God. Friends, as we go out here, remember, I am a child of God. I see you taking pictures. If you want to find this and read more about it, this is in Knowing God, uh, the chapter on adoption. I am a child of God. It's my status. It's my position. It's my inheritance. It's my right. It's who I am. I am a child of God. God is my Father. Those two things go together, but those are different statements. I am a child of God is a statement about who I am. God is my Father is a statement about what God is like. God is a Father. Think about everything that goes into that, but a good Father even if you had a fantastic father here on earth, and I did, and many of you do, they're sitting right next to you, but fathers fail, fathers are weak, they're forgetful, they're insensitive, there's times they make jokes that aren't funny, there's times that they say things that are hurtful. They're imperfect fathers. There's only one perfect father, and that is God. God is my father, and heaven is my home. We've got to review that truth. Every day, heaven is my home. Heaven is my home. But every day is one step nearer. I love this thought. Heaven is my home, and every day is one step nearer. If you have a hard day lined up, you got a big test, you got an interview at work, it's going to be a long day, you got to go work out in the yard and do something. Every day, one step closer to heaven. That city, paid with gold, big glorious, come down from heaven. You know what else? My Savior is my brother. Does that surprise you that that's there? My Savior is my brother. We think sometimes of a Savior as, as far off and distant, a lion and a lamb. He's Okay, he did this thing, but that was like 2,000 years ago that he died on the cross. A Savior is my brother. Think about an older brother that protects, shows you a way, Younger siblings look at an older brother and they say, oh, that's how you do it. That's how you get ready for college. Oh, look, there he went. He got married. Okay, now I see what I'm supposed to do. He does it all perfectly, and he cares, and he loves, and every Christian is my brother and sister too. We have been brought together as the church. We need one another. God designed it so that we together would glorify God on the earth, that we would have together a little slice of heaven right here. Every Christian is my brother and my sister. Thinking about this prepares us for heaven. Being here, guys, being here together prepares us for heaven. We are in this beautiful, idyllic setting. We're among friends and family members, people that we love so much, and we're getting to be, be near God through his word and through worship. What happens here at Advance prepares us for heaven. This really is a little slice of heaven. But it's such a faint slice. I wanted to show my wife a picture of how beautiful the sunrise was this morning. So I whipped out my phone and I took a picture. I looked at it. It's like, these, it's like this little gray mist and this red dot. I see these beautiful pictures on the internet. They're like, shot with iPhone. Well, not with my iPhone. What? <laughs> and I think, I've got this vista. I'm standing on the edge of this bluff, and I see this, this valley. I don't know. I, how far can I see? And I, there's, I saw this full moon last night, and I saw the sunrise this morning, and all I've got to show for it is this, this little red dot on my phone. That is to that view, that little dot on my phone is to the view that I see like this is to heaven, but even more so. This is the smallest little taste. This is not, this is not even an appetizer. This is, this is the faintest whiff. We haven't even gotten a taste of it yet. We've just gotten a sniff of this is this, but it's a little bit like what heaven is gonna be. C.S. Lewis says, there have been times when I think that we do not des desire heaven. There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. All that we desire in this world, 
You get hungry and the desire for a good meal. You go out and cut the grass or play outside in the heat of the summer and you desire a cold drink. You desire a good long nap on the couch or a good sleep tonight in your bed. You desire a long, intimate conversation with your best friend. You desire to laugh with your family. All of that. What are we desiring that? We are longing for heaven. Every desire on this earth is just a desire to be with God, to know God, and to have all the gifts that God gives us in heaven. And if you desire heaven, it can be yours. And it will be yours through the blood of the lion who is the lamb that was slain but now stands. So as we go out from here, as we drive home, as we see these beautiful mountains and hills and trees and butterflies and hummingbirds and everything there is to marvel at in this world, as we have a tasty lunch and good dinner tonight, as you have wonderful conversations, may all of this fuel our hunger for heaven. Let's rejoice and thank God for this world that he's made. It has hamburgers and french fries and milkshakes. It has comfortable clothes. It has a nice bed to sleep in. You notice how I've mentioned that like five times? just longing for heaven, y'all. Let's look forward to the day when all of this will be remade without the stain of sin, and we will see our Savior face to face because the lion who is the lamb died on the cross for our sins that he might bring us near to God so that one day we could see God the Father face to face. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that the blood of your son, the blood of the lion, the blood of the lamb will take us home. We long for heaven. We can't wait for heaven. We have this little slice of heaven right now. And while we're here, may we use it. May we be attentive to your many gifts and the many difficulties that we have in this life. And may it all stir in us a deeper desire for heaven, a longing to be with you, a longing for that better country, a longing for that glorious city, a longing to see you face to face. And so we wait with patient endurance. We rejoice while we're here in the lion who is the lamb that was slain. And we take up our sword to battle the dragon. And we think and feel and long and eagerly wait for heaven. Thank you for this time. Father, we pray that you would take everything that has happened at advance. Make it profitable in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, in our churches, for your glory and for the sake of your name. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, whom we love with all our hearts. Amen. You've been listening to a conference given for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.